This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich. I'm here with Richard Lawson. Hello. And joining us for the first of many times, Rebecca Ford. Thank you uh, for finally being on Little Go Men. Guys, this is so exciting. I'm a longtime <laughs> listener. I, I, I'm like geeking out right now. We are very excited. You've been at VF for a little while, but we kind of had like overlapping vacations and it just like got hard to get you on the show somehow. But uh, now you're here and you've been publishing so much great stuff already. So uh, hopefully everyone has just been waiting for the moment you'd finally show up. It's a great time because it's like the overlap of Emmy and, and pre-Oscar season. So I feel yeah. like this is good timing. Yeah, I was thinking we would talk about Emmy stuff, but like we have so long until the Emmys, honestly. Like it's still over a month away. And you've been like you and David Canfield both have been doing great interviews with Emmy contenders. And we can talk about some of those. But there's so much movie stuff to get into. Um, we will have one Emmy moment at the end of the show. Uh, Joanna Robinson talked to Eric Kripke, who's the showrunner of The Boys, which got a uh, somewhat surprising Best Drama Series nomination at the Emmys. So uh, Joanna will pop in later on to introduce that interview. Um, but we have teasers. We have Hollywood Foreign Press drama. We have Scarlett Johansson suing Disney. We have Matt Damon running his mouth. There is so much little bits of news to talk about. Uh, and also Annette, which is out in theaters now, will be on Amazon Prime in a few weeks. Um, I kind of wanted to start with the trailers part of it, um, partly because in some ways the House of Gucci trailer felt like the biggest movie news of last week. Um, I don't like I haven't talked too much with you guys in detail at all, but like I assume that you're both pretty impressed by the trailer like the rest of uh, Twitter seemed to be. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I was what I was most excited about was that it seems to be kind of playful in tone. I was expecting because it was Ridley Scott something kind of really dour and in the vein of all the money in the world. Um, mm -hmm. But instead, it looks like it's like a good time, which um, is a pleasant surprise. Yeah, they seem to like know they're having fun with it, which all the money in the world did not have going for it. So yeah. I'm really excited, and and of course the Gaga. I mean, come on, it's so good yeah and, and my philosophy on the accents because that was sort of the immediate backlash was like these are terrible italian accent it's at least everyone's doing it you know <laughs> it's not like it's just gaga and then all italian actors yeah. um so i feel like it's forgivable if everyone's doing it yeah like i don't know what jeremy irons authentic italian accent is supposed to be but uh, i assume it's going to be pretty out there and then you know jared leto off on a planet of his own it seems under a whole lot of prosthetics the makeup race is going to get intense really fast yeah, I feel like the, the makeup race is going to be way more cutthroat than it's been in the last few years. But I love a cutthroat makeup race. <laughs> there was a kind of funny joke on Twitter 
that someone brought to my attention that was like uh, they posted the photo of the character poster for Jared Leto and they were like in, in the 70s they just hired people who looked like this <laughs> 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 instead of you know taking someone else and slathering them in makeup but hey whatever works um, I did have all the money in the world in mind, uh, as you mentioned, Rebecca, when that came out, just because, like, again, like, Ridley Scott isn't known for making things that are funny. But, like, maybe it's the difference between having Mark Wahlberg as the lead in your movie and having Adam Driver and Lady Gaga. Like, what what is setting the tone that makes us expect something better? I guess it, to me it feels like the dialogue and the editing, I guess. And I did think the color scheme seems similar to all the money in the world, but I don't know if that's just kind of blue. Having, like, yeah, just yeah. kind of faded. Um, yeah, but yeah, I, th- I, it does. It, 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 you're right. It probably is the performances because they have seem to be having, like I said, a lot more fun with it and are seem self aware of how ridiculous it is. So, um, yeah, to me, it's probably performance based. Yeah, that line at the end with a father son and house of Gucci. You're just like, okay, I feel like yeah. I know what kind of movie this is going to be. I guess I should remind myself that like. The Martian was a yeah. comedy in a lot of ways. Yeah. I rewatched a lot of that on the plane home uh, from Cannes recently. And uh, this is pre-Damon Damon stuff, obviously. Um, but yeah, it, it is light in tone. So I guess that maybe House of Gucci is kind of following that thing. I mean, I just don't think you can cast Lady Gaga, who I'm sure is giving a real performance, but like kind of styled and everything like, you know, Marissa Tomei and My Cousin Vinny and like not uh-huh. have it be a little bit light and, and, and winking. Yeah. Uh, I need to read the book that this is based on. I kind of didn't put together that it was based on a book until the trailer came out. So I feel like I've got some homework to do. Um, And we are expecting House of Gucci kind of later in the season. It's not on any of the festival lineups yet. So we get to build our anticipation for for months to come. I am really curious about how Gaga's Oscar campaign goes, because she got a lot of heat the first time through when she was like so earnest at everything. And I'm curious to see how she does it this time. So we'll see. Yeah, if like a more arch movie gives her a more arch oscar campaign to go with it yeah, yeah that'd be that would be really fun yeah it's funny because what you know remember when a star is born premiered at venice and there was that incredible photo of her on the you know the wood-sided motorboat like riding mm. to the premiere oh yes and there was such a thrill of it like gaga's a movie star and unfortunately this one doesn't have that thrill because we've already been through that cycle before with her um so yeah they'll have to be kind of a different strategy than that sort of breathless like i made it you know world here i am kind of thing but maybe that will be more in the movie itself, in the performance itself, and she won't have to do quite so much work. I mean, I, th- hmm. I think that her performance in Star is Born was incredible, but like, you know, she, I think maybe she'll be a little bit more like, yeah, I've been here before, a little bit yeah. cooler about the whole thing. Yeah. Well, as the trailer reminds you, uh, Lady Gaga is an Academy Award winner and Ridley Scott is not. So uh, this is the <laughs> chance. Well, he should have written score. some songs for A Star is Born then. <laughs> there was someone tweeted, like, how often do you think Ridley Scott wakes up in the night and thinks, I should have just produced Gladiator? And you're like, yeah, <laughs> he should have. <laughs> it's really weird. Um, well, on the trailer beat, um, there is a teaser floating around only in the form of Twitter screenshots because it doesn't appear to have been officially released, but it aired during the Olympics coverage a few days ago for Don't Look Up, the Adam McKay movie with Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence and Jonah Hill and Meryl Streep and Ariana Grande. I'm trying to do this all from memory. It's a whole bunch of people. Uh, it's like a little 30 second tease. Um, it is a movie about scientists who see an asteroid coming to Earth. If you follow Adam McKay on Twitter, you probably get that it's a metaphor. I looked, it looked fun. Like anything that starts with Leonardo DiCaprio in like kind of weak panic attack mode, I am automatically going to be in for. It feels like kind of the wilder scenes of Wolf of Wall Street. We don't know much beyond that. I guess that means it. You know, this means it is coming this year, which is good because it was kind of a question mark from Netflix. Um, I think I've 
advice aside, I, I like the big short a lot. And so I feel like I'm going to maybe be more excited for this than some people. But um, what anything get you guys excited when this from this very brief tease? I'm like such a sucker for a montage of giant celebrities that I, they could have just been sitting there in front of the camera and I've been like, yes, award season, here you come. But I did, I did, I mean, I do love that tone and it does feel like an Adam McKay I would like based on that, you know, 12 seconds that we got to see. So for me, I was just like, look at all those people I want to see act together. Yep. Yep. And I think that this being a sort of more fanciful, made up kind of thing, Hopefully it will take McKay out of the sort of self-seriousness that really bogged down um, Vice, I think. Um, mm-hmm. You know, because we already we, we knew a lot about Dick Cheney and it was not really that fun to have him be given the McKay treatment, you know. But this is like uh, mostly made up, I think. Right. Like and so, you know, Meryl Streep's like playing it. the president and, you know, Ariana Grande's in it. And I just I don't know. I think that like hopefully that again with similar to Gucci, like that playfulness will hopefully kind of, um, you know, leaven the movie a bit. Um, I'm also as excited to see the prominent positioning of Rob Morgan's credit in the hmm. this teaser because he's such a great actor and has been kind of simmering with a sort of like second act, you know, renaissance recently. And so maybe this will be big for him. Um, I'm also very curious about, you know, just the whole cast, honestly. I mean, Melanie Linsky, Matthew Perry, Gina Gershon, Ron Perlman, Kate Blanchett, Timothy Chalamet, Mark Rylance. Tyler Perry, like it's just like a great lineup. I had forgotten a lot of people were in that list. Thank you for for doing the yeah. IMDb research. Okay, one more trailer to get into. Uh, another semi question mark ahead of us for the season. The trailer for King Richard, uh, the biopic about Venus and Serena Williams's father, came out oddly timed. Honestly, and this is through new photo of their own, like the same day that Simone Biles backed out of the Olympics. Kind of you know partly. I don't know if she cited it this way, but you know tied to the pressure that these really high level athletes are put under. So given the conversation around Simone Biles and Naomi Osaka and like the way we're talking about mental health and pressure in sports, it's an interesting time to put out a King Richard biopic. Um, but I think if you know seeing Will Smith kind of. Getting into a different mode, like not just doing the movie star charisma thing, you know, the pursuit of happiness got him an Oscar nomination, you know, 13 years ago or so. This feels like very much in that mold. Um, And I'm I'm curious how much Will Smith's movie stardom becomes a draw for something like this, even if the you know, it's a story of triumph for two very, very famous tennis players. So I'm not sure how much suspense is going to be in the movie, but the, the acting might pull it over the line. Yeah, it feels like a Will Smith performance movie you know um and i mean for me it's wait and see i've talked to a lot of people who have seen it and said it's really good so i am definitely excited to see it um but yeah i think the timing was weird when you're you're trying to focus on the athlete and this is a story about their dad and i I think they'll have some navigating to do on sort of the narrative for award season but the trailer looked good and seemed like the feedback was overall really good when it came out so i don't know we'll see Yeah, Serena and Venus are both producers on the movie, so they will presumably be there in force for the promotion process for this. Yeah, I think it's hard. It will be hard for them to get around the reaction that's like, so wait, these two incredible women who have achieved so much in a field that previously was like really closed off to, you know, people of color. And then the movie is about their dad. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like, I think that could be kind of the issue unless like these young actors who are playing Venus and Serena as children, maybe they're much more in the lead position than it looks in the trailer. Hmm. I don't know, but I mean, the, um, the movie the movie's called King Richard, so it, it is. I mean, yeah, but that was they, they borrowed that from me. Yeah, you know, that's what I refer to myself as. I know it, it they had to pay to you a title. lot of money yeah. to use that yeah. title. Um, but I, I think I said it when we had our like um, when we did our you know look ahead to the year in movies um, episode 
back in the fall in the winter and like wouldn't a great like hey the industry's back like movie stars are back thing be if will smith won an oscar you know yeah like yeah i feel like that would be good for the industry yeah, I feel like we're always, like, last week we talked about Jamie Lee Curtis winning an Oscar. Like, we're always here for the giant movie star narratives of award season, which, uh, you know, someone's got to be. We need to to root for the big guys <laughs> to come in on the Oscar <laughs> Those season. Those indie actors have enough. You know? <laughs> also, I mean, I think Serena Williams and Venus both have at least one documentary, possibly multiple documentaries. So it's possible, like, their story has been told and now it's time for their dad to get the spotlight. I'm, at least I think there could be more potential for surprise in that because I do think... Venus and Serena's personal achievements are fairly well known at this point. Okay, well, on the subject of movie stars, um, there was a very big story involving one of them last week and one of the last few. Scarlett Johansson, the highest paid actress in Hollywood as of 2019, I guess, which is, you know, the last year these numbers wouldn't be all COVID crazy. Um, She's suing Disney over the release of Black Widow. And the story itself is like... I feel like you kind of need to be a lawyer, understand Hollywood contracts to like get into like who's right and who's wrong. Um, you know, we're kind of here just seeing the public version of it. There's presumably a lot happening behind the scenes. But I think it's really interesting, as as I just said, someone who's invested in movie stars and just like how this crazy changing streaming landscape is going to affect all of them and make it harder for people like Scarlett Johansson to have power, harder for them to make money, but also harder for them to like be relevant forces in how Hollywood makes their decisions. And it makes me feel... I guess mostly pessimistic that like even Scarlett Johansson is going to get screwed over in this new world. Um, But also seeing her flex her muscle is fascinating. And the idea that these stars are willing to take on the studios in this way. Um, You know, it's been about a week since the news broke. So have either of you guys kind of settled on either who's right and who's wrong? What do you think is going to happen from this? Or like what what lessons we can learn from where this all stands? Um, I feel like it probably settles outside of court, yes. but that, <laughs> I feel confident uh, about that. <laughs> that part doesn't really matter. I think the attention that it's brought and the conversations that everyone now is having is what matters. And, and, you know, I think we've been talking about for a while now that the movie stars don't have the power anymore, right? It's the IP, it's the Captain America or, you know, the Mandalorian or whatever it is that matters. So um, it is interesting to see sort of the loss of what a movie star was I guess um but I don't know I think where it goes from here is like what you have to see with like a Reese Witherspoon right is they make their own stuff they take the power that way and they sell to streaming um but what does that leave for someone like Scarlett or these giant even Will Smith what we're talking about these sort of giant movie stars that have built their careers on being that and have all the power from that I don't know I mean COVID has really changed everything very quickly when it probably would have taken you know, sort of more years for it to become sort of a completely different landscape. But but this is all changing so rapidly now. Yeah, what you said about Reese Witherspoon, her company, Hello Sunshine, sold to an investment firm, I think, um, that for a huge amount of money. And she's kind of built it in a relatively short period of time. And she has that kind of entrepreneur thing that, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow has done. We've seen a lot of actresses who are like, well, uh, you know, I'm either not getting the roles that I want if I'm not producing them or something like that who move into that kind of um, business side of things. Um, but if you just want to be an actor, the road feels a lot narrower than it used to be probably. Yeah. And I think, you know, some people were rolling their eyes because, oh, it's Scarlett Johansson. She made, you know, she's made gazillions of dollars off these movies already. Uh, doesn't she have enough? Which, you know, is not the point. The point is that it is a labor story. You know, it's a labor issue. It's about companies while expanding, kind of consolidating the revenue streams into, you know, where, where they point, you know, and, uh, you know, getting more subscribers to Disney Plus is great for Disney shareholders. But like a lot of people who worked on the projects that are kind of coming under that umbrella maybe aren't getting 
you know, the cut that they would from, you know, residuals or, you know, tra traditional models of like uh, the, the long life of, of, of something you worked on. Um, so, yes, Scarlett Johansson has to be the sort of famous face vanguard of that. But I think the implications for it in general, you know, because the rules for streaming are so unestablished because they're so new. And I know that's been a tension in a lot of labor issues coming out of Hollywood uh, for the past few years. So this is just kind of another one. And ultimately, I think we should side with the... Uh, <laughs> the, 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 the underdog. Then, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and especially when Disney puts out their comment that's like Scarlett Johansson made $20 million already. Like the intensity of Disney's public statements in response to this really surprised me because that's like just doesn't feel on brand for the company or for the way that Marvel has been like really meticulously building the stable of stars. So we'll sign nine picture deals and we'll do all the press and everything. Like this is such a marked shift from that strategy they've been doing for so long. And um, I mean, no other Marvel people have followed suit, which is also really interesting, um, which makes you wonder if like there are more people willing to fall in line than um, than maybe we thought. That statement from Disney was bonkers. I, it was crazy. I, it's just, like, they're so careful with everything in, the, in their media statements and their image. And I was just like, what is happening? And then, um, you know, Scarlett's agent, Ryan Lord, also released a statement. And agents don't usually release public statements. So this whole thing is just totally fascinating. Yeah. And even if you're not someone who, like, cares about Hollywood lawsuits or contracts or can't, like, find your way through, which I think a lot of us can't, like, it just... It does feel like a wall has broken in a in a weird way, um, and maybe this is in, in like inspiration for the companies to share streaming numbers with their clients and with their talent, like help people get a sense of like if they have a hit on Disney Plus and if they have a hit on Netflix. It's been so opaque for so long. Um, it, it feels like something big, but a big change will come out of this. But it's hard to see who it will benefit and which side it will land on. I was recently talking to a, you know, not like studio, but like a pretty known film producer. And they told me they had recently had a project on Netflix that seems to have done well. And even they, they are the lead producer on this, have no idea what those numbers are. Netflix will not tell them. And it's just like, yeah, that, that transparency like needs to happen. I think, you know, David Sims wrote something for The Atlantic that kind of got re-relevant. I mean, it was still relevant from when it was published, but like about what streaming, what the kind of day and date stuff like does for like the bottom line. And, and really in the end, like it's much more profitable for everybody to have, a, you know, an exclusive theatrical release for a certain window of time. Um, and I think the important thing that I that, you know, that I saw, I did see people online doing this to, to impress upon those skeptical and are like, well, I just I just want to watch things where I want to watch it when I want to watch it. And Scarlett Johansson's being greedy is that like this scale of movie will not happen again. Mm -hmm. If everything is streaming, because there will not be a financial incentive to spend $250 million on a movie, I think. Um, and, you know, Netflix is sort of does they, they do some big budget things, but a lot of what they put out is not really anywhere near that scale. And mm -hmm. I think that's something to be con that the everyone sort of defending Disney on this should be conscious of is that like, is that like that is going to eventually affect the material. This is a fluke time when stuff was already made for theatrical release that's now being, you know, put on Disney Plus or whatever, but that will not be the case going forward. Yeah, and I think David is one of the people who brings up the, what, what is an obvious point, but I just somehow never think of. It's like they make money twice when they put these things in theaters. You make money when it's in theaters and then people buy it again on DVD or they rent it like six months later. It's just the logic of it is so much there and, you know, they're not going to follow us all directly to our houses, at least, uh, you know, without a pandemic to force them to do it. I hope because, you know, you want I think we all are invested in movie theaters existing in some form when this is all over, if we can get to that point. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> 
The run for Revogue is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am Fran Libowitch. Um, we should be the mayor of New York. We all support yeah, that. Yeah, we support that. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Nikki. Yes. It's been really great she being in this beautiful pink room. All right, Asher, can you hear us? I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me? We can. We can. All right, here we are. <laughs> On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are AWOK. Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um, A-W-O-K, Anna Winter OK. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mal. And we're the hosts of The Run Through with Vogue, where fashion and culture collide. Join us. It's AWOK. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Uh, well, we, are, we can continue talking about movie stars for one last story, which is Matt Damon, who's really been been through a process uh, over the last couple of days. Stillwater came out last week. He did an interview with it in which he seemed to have said that he stopped using the F-word slur for gay people a couple months ago after a conversation with his daughter. He came out with a statement um, today, Tuesday's recording us, kind of clarifying what he said and kind of not uh, after kind of spending the weekend getting thoroughly um, lambasted on Twitter. Um, it's still kind of early to tell what is going to happen as a result of this. Still water is out in theaters. Presumably some people are still seeing it. Presumably a lot of people are not aware that any of this happened. Um, but he has still water. He's got the last duel out later this year. Um, I the, I feel like I tend to defend Matt Damon more than a lot of people. So maybe I shouldn't go first because I did. No, I, I like, was defending him to friends last night as well. Ooh, not joining, um, not, not doing it on Twitter though. No, no, God, absolutely <laughs> not. No, um, no, just over a text thread with, you know, me and, and like four other gay men and just being like, you know, and a lot of them were, you know, angry at Damon or upset with the whole situation. And I, and I get it. Um, but like, I think he was trying to say something that we hoped we would hope that any, you know, man of that era would say. He just said it sort of inelegantly. I think the problem from a PR perspective is that Damon is kind of from a time when, like, you talk to a major outlet and and whatever quote lived there and everyone greeted it as like, oh, look how smart and precocious and whatever Matt Damon is. And, like, not the era which we are in now where everything is, like, scrutinized and whatever. I think ultimately what, what he was trying to say was good. He just said it in a bad way. And I don't know what, you know, his past in terms of in his private life, how often he said that word and what context he said that word, whatever. But, like, from just the quotes alone, I'm like, I, I don't know. I don't need, I don't think the pylon is entirely justified. I had a really hard time imagining him using that word in his life in 2021 in any context. It just, it didn't, add up to me like obviously there are people who do but like Matt Damon lives in a world in which that would just be unlikely so it made his explanation of the situation made sense even if it like sort of felt like more of the same foot and mouth disease it has got him in trouble here they got him in trouble in that run of Project Greenlight a couple 
years ago. Like he does seem to have this kind of marketability to to step in it while having good intentions in the process. Yeah, I think it you know, I saw that Project Greenlight clip going around again in the last few days. And I think it's not just about this moment, which it does sound, you know, like things got a little convoluted from what he probably really said. But um, I think because he sort of has a history of putting his foot in his mouth, everyone's like, of course, he said something stupid. But, um, you know, it's hard. It's hard for these celebrities to do press because with the social media and the Internet, any little thing can just get totally manipulated in in the wrong way. And I think that that's just probably what happened this time. But um, will he do press for the rest of the season? Because this wasn't super fun for him. So uh, I don't know. I feel like he may back off of doing much after this. But we'll see. And I think the difference with the Project Greenlight thing is like that is like fully like an extended on tape moment of that is presumably just organically happened. And, you know, and that was like very bad um i but i did this quote thing it just feels like is he so foot in mouth that he would just like willingly like out himself no pun intended as like someone who just threw this world word around until what like may yeah <laughs> you know i don't know that doesn't sound exactly right knowing what we know about him um inter- you know so I, I who knows what the actual truth of it is but like yeah the project Greenlight thing going around i totally understand why it is but that feels much more serious than this incident or whatever yeah. it was it uh, does there was a quote going around that um from a new york times magazine interview with matt damon recently that mark harris uh tweeted um where he kind of talked about I, I think that i had forgotten about where like at the height of me too he said that like accusations of inappropriate sexual behavior need to be seen on the spectrum he apologized for it and then in this recent interview he said i was and am tone deaf like everybody i'm a prisoner of my subjective experience and that leads to having blind spots me more than most given the experience that i've had as a white male american movie star it's a very rarefied air i don't even know where my blind spots begin and end so yes i was and am tone deaf i do try my best not to be and that's i I thought that was a nicely self-aware quote from someone who could very much get away with not being self-aware and I find I, I find that almost more interesting than kind of this swirling controversy going on around him. A good quote. He could just yeah. say that at the end of every interview. <laughs> yeah. He just reads it from an index card before and after every interview. It's like an asterisk next to being like, this quote is coming from a rich yeah. white man who has been famous since 1996. Now let us talk about the film and only the film. <laughs> Yeah, the press tour from The Last Duel is going to be fascinating. For I mean, I guess it's coming sooner than we think because it's going to be at Venice. Um, that movie is eight <laughs> different kinds of fascinating. Nicole Hollisoner is getting a call and she, she's like, you want me to do all the press? <laughs> <laughs> It'll be her and Jodie Comer and no one else. Just on the boat in, in Venice. Just, us, just the two of them. I mean, yeah. I'd ride that boat. That sounds yeah, like a blast. Yeah. yeah. Um, Okay, one more news item to talk about before we get into movies for a little while. Um, There was a story in The Hollywood Reporter that ran Monday um, that was effectively like, here are the 10 HFPA members, Hollywood Foreign Press members who publicists want to work with. Um, Basically, they did a vote. They asked, or, you know, Scott Feinberg wrote the story, um, asked eight big publicists who are the members of the Hollywood Foreign Press that they like, and it kind of name checks a bunch of people whose names you probably don't know because the Hollywood Foreign Press is relatively anonymous as, you know, this 84-member voting body. Um, it seemed to me that it was an effort by those people to say, hey, we know the Hollywood Foreign Press is getting a lot of bad press. We're still good. Come work with us, either in a revived version of the Hollywood Foreign Press or in a splinter organization. And I say splinter organization, Rebecca, I got that idea primarily from you and the reporting you did with um, one of the members who dropped out earlier this year. Um, having reported on the Hollywood Foreign Press, what was your sense of, of what this story was, where the story was coming from and what it might accomplish? 
I think you're right. I, I mean, it, the Hollywood Foreign Press has just been beat down to the ground here. And, you know, there are members that are there are at least a couple members who are real journalists who write for international outlets and who work well with press and who ask smart questions. And and so to treat them all as as sort of the same seems unfair. And so I think it was a way to point out that there are some legitimate um, members left. And, you know, the pair of journalists who did leave, you know, I know I know one of them well and and they also were working journalists. And and so it is a, a way to show, hey, we're not all bad and asking sexist questions at the junkets, you know. So um, <laughs> it was a way to try and do that. I mean, these are still journalists that most people have not heard of, as you said. Um, and I think that really hurts the legitimacy of that organization. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I've been at plenty of those uh, backstage award shows where the questions that come from the HFP members are literally insane and you're and and crazy yep. but yes. but they're not all like that so there are some real ones that are working um so yeah it's it was a way to kind of point that out um will it do any good at this point i don't know i mean there's just so many layers of bad news going on here for the hfpa the framing of the article was interesting in that it was sort of like not bullet pointed but it was like coming in with four mentions are yeah. you know xyz person and then with three yeah. and i i know that there was a certain utility to that and i also know that more light does need to be shined on the, the membership and who they are and what they represent and, you know given the lack of you know you know there're no black members etc like we need to know who's in the group to know who's not in it yeah. but right there's some knee jerk thing in me. I don't know where where it's coming from. Was like this is narking. Like this is like, I, like <laughs> the tone, you know. But of course, it's, that's not the intention at all. But um, it was. I mean, it was just kind of interesting. The you know the one person I've ever met from the HFPA was not named, <laughs> and I was like, interesting. <laughs> okay, <laughs> didn't make, it's the Hunger Games of the HFPA. Right. <laughs> Who survives? Yeah, I mean, Rebecca, in the story you wrote in June, there was a sense that, like, some of the people who are frustrated with the group may try to start their own organization. And I think it remains to be seen if that will happen or if, uh, as David Canfield was reporting on a few weeks ago, if the Critics' Choice Awards or the SAG Awards kind of take the place of the Golden Globes and then we just kind of move on without it. And I think we can't really know if anyone will miss it until the whole season goes on without it. But it did seem like... This was an effort to say, like, well, if the Hollywood Foreign Press can regroup and keep these people in charge and, like, change the membership entirely, maybe they can continue to exist. But I still don't know if that's going to be enough. Yeah, I mean, the ex-member that I talked to at the time really emphasized that it is a leadership problem. So, you know, I think regardless of how many good members may be in there, it it's coming from the top down. So I think that's probably what they need to figure out more than anything. It could be exciting if they did have a real membership shakeup or, you know, and brought more people in from all over the world. You know, maybe they change some of the residency things about where you, you know, having to live in Los Angeles or whatever the qualification is. And if it still had the same, you know, it was still the Golden Globes with a big Sunday night broadcast. But if it was actually kind of more globally thinking, you know, I, th- I think mm-hmm. there could be a, a very 20, 21st century version of this that maybe even acts kind of like the Spirit Awards do as a as another counterbalance to the Oscars, which tends to think very, you know, not always, but often very linearly about like what kind of movies are Oscar movies and what gets in and what doesn't and where things mm-hmm. get put. You know, I don't know, that could be exciting, but that would take a lot of, of effort uh, and maybe 
they're just trying to do the minimal to get, you know, get back in people's good graces. You know, they're, they're already kind of begging publicists to work with them again. It's like, well, it hasn't been that long, folks. <laughs> <laughs> there was a kind of brutal sentence in this uh, near the end. Several other publicists noted that while not all HFPA members are heavyweights in their field, the same could be said for the membership of the Critics' Choice Association, British Academy of Film and Television Arts, and other awards dispensing organizations. Way harsh, probably also true. <laughs> Not in the New York Film Critics Circle. I, I, I reject I, that. Yeah. I mean, the New York Film Critics Circle, I would say, like has done a pretty good job of keeping the membership pretty tight. So you, you guys are doing a great job Until there. I came along. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, let's get into talking about uh, some movies that are out there in the world right now, um, or at least very soon. Uh, Richard, you talked about Annette from Cannes not so long ago. It was the opening night film there. It's coming out in theaters now. It will be on Amazon Prime in a few weeks. Uh, Rebecca and I both got to see it not as the uh, opening night film at Cannes, but in our homes, which is you know where a lot of people will see things these days. Um, Richard, has your have your feelings on Annette changed at all since Cannes, where you were um, not a fan, really? I have stricken it from my memory. <laughs> I, I, I remember the song, uh, We Love Each Other So Much, and I remember oh, yeah. the puppet. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I'm curious to hear what you, you both have to say about it because <laughs> it's kind of like really faded in my, in my head. Yeah, that We Love Each Other So Much song was stuck in my head for uh, for a while after watching Annette. You know, I was impressed and then frustrated by it. And then uh, it felt like it went on forever because it's a pretty long movie. Uh, the puppet who I don't I can't remember if the puppet's being treated as a spoiler. Um, but I think it's been written about enough. Like the the daughter that this couple played by Marion Cotillard and Adam Driver have is played uh, by a puppet um for for most of the movie who is like realish but not real. Like it's very deliberately in the uncanny valley. It's a pretty impressive construction of something. Mm-hmm. Um and then in the second half of the movie, uh this puppet kind of becomes a child star. And as someone who you've heard on this podcast talk about how I feel like child stardom shouldn't happen and these kids should just have normal lives, uh did connect with me in some way. Um it's much more of Adam Driver's movie than I was expecting. Like I it's not really a two-hander. Um and Rebecca, I don't know how much that surprised you too, how much you paid attention to the can buzz and um kind of got a sense of what this movie was before you got into it. Yeah, I didn't realize that it was purely an Adam Driver movie for most of it, which I'm okay with because I love watching him. <laughs> um, and I, Richard, I would have loved to see this in Cannes because I feel like, especially in the beginning of Cannes, you're so jet lagged and like confused that watching this there would have been great, I think. Um, <laughs> yeah. Watching it in the reality of my normal life I felt like it took me a while to kind of like get on board what was going on because it is so wild um but I would say the last like 20 minutes I was like I'm fully on board I enjoyed this movie even though I I did struggle with the first half I would say um to kind of be okay with the world <laughs> they had set up I guess um but yeah I mean it's a it's a great out of driver performance it's definitely not for everybody or Many people, maybe, but um, <laughs> yeah, I, it had its moments. And the little puppet girl is like kind of close to the age of my daughter for most of that movie, and I felt very attached. And I was like, something is going on that I'm attached oh. to a creepy puppet. So I don't yeah, know. how how did your love of Adam Driver uh, filter through this character that he's playing, who is like pretty aggressively unlikable? And you know, we don't need all of our movie uh, heroes to be especially likable, but I. I found myself kind of wanting to get away from him as much as possible, even if I recognized the skill that was going into Adam Driver's performance there. Yeah. I mean, he's so great at the intense narcissist. Like, I, I can't get enough of it, right? That's that's what he does well. Um, but yeah, I mean, watching this part where the character's on stage, like, 
it wasn't the easiest part of the movie to get through for me, but um, yeah, it's another great performance. I do like to think about Adam Driver having to watch himself at Cannes because I think that's the one festival where he can't sneak <laughs> out of the theater and like he hates watching himself. So I just like wish Richard, you could have like peeked over at him while he was watching. This movie. He did. He did smoke a cigarette, I believe, during the standing ovation at the end. Uh, in yeah, the that's how he felt. Um, yeah. Well, because I, I didn't go to the opening night, opening night, and mm. but the scenario that that, that set up before the people who were there was, you get there an hour early, then everyone files in the cast and everybody then the whole opening night ceremony starts which is about two hours oh my god and then there's the two hour and 20 minute annette so oh my, my, my a god. colleague of mine from a different publication was in that theater for six hours oh my gosh <laughs> and that in that situation i would have really hated annette but i saw it much more manageably but um yeah i do you know speaking stuff Speaking of Adam Driver, I do think there there is a potential continuity that I could believe that this is his same character from Girls. You know, like there, <laughs> he does seem to be doing these interesting developments and riffs on the same, not the same person exactly, but a sort of same type of, of character. And I think he, you know, is always good at that, even if yeah. I don't like the movie that he's doing it in. Just one last thing on Annette. I kind of struggle with it as a musical. And Richard, you and I talk about musicals all the time. And I feel like haven't talked about it in that way, which is maybe telling. Like, there's a really pretty catchy song at the beginning. And then there's a really nice musical moment at the end. But then a lot of the songs are just very, like, sort of melodic and sort of not. They're written by Sparks, which is a band I don't know all that much about. I just... There are some cool musical flourishes, a lot of which are like kind of this Greek chorus presence of the media or kind of people surrounding them. But like otherwise, a lot of the singing felt very ineffective, which I did not expect as someone who loves musicals. So I asked someone who is familiar with Sparks in a way that I'm certainly not. And they said that the songs in Annette were much more reflective of like their later work, huh. um, not sort of like standalone melodic pop songs, but more sort of this like, yeah, kind of tonally odd and repetitive i mean it felt like you know I, uh, if you've ever seen like a philip glass opera or something uh -huh. like it feels that sort of like it's kind of this like oral churn repetition of words apparently that's something sparks does a lot that like yeah it's, it's interesting but it it's hard on you know on film i think you know to just kind of say like okay we you, you love each other so much like let's, <laughs> let's move on you know um because I, I think that from the trailer and just my own sort of naivete about sparks and where carax was you know in terms of what he wanted to make these days i did think it was going to be like big moulin rouge just kind of pop euphoria kind of thing uh which it is certainly not and i think that might alienate some people but also draw some people in yeah, now I have that song stuck in my head again. Thanks, guys. Yeah, appreciate it. Um, okay, last thing before we throw to Joanna Robinson and in her interview with Eric Kripke. And uh, Joanna is probably also going to talk about this movie a little bit. But uh, I wanted to talk about Green Knight because I finally saw it. Uh, Richard, you reviewed it. Rebecca, you saw it. Um, it. I went to the theater to see it at late on a Friday night and was really um, pleasantly surprised by the amount of people who were there. It was like a very... Uh, you know, local film Twitter crowd and everyone was like very quiet and respectful, except for the parts where I think the movie earned a laugh or two. Um, and I was saying this in a meeting with Rebecca earlier. I feel like watching Annette before Green Knight really helped like expand my brain to the point where I could like be ready for the Green Knight, even though it's a movie that I liked a lot more because it's it's strange. You don't always know what's going on. There's a lot of things that you can't explain that's that, uh, that happened in that movie. Um, but I was so entranced by it and so uh, grateful that I saw it. Um, and Rebecca, you think you j just watched it. So what's your reaction, Ben? 
Yeah, I really, really enjoyed it too. And and now that you've said that about Annette, I do wonder if my double feature affected um, how much I did like it. But um, I, I just thought it was so beautifully done and Dev Patel is so great and the crafts are amazing. And, and I don't know. I mean, I think it could have, if they're smart with it, have at least be a part of the conversation for awards, you know, as sort of this weird early release. Yeah, we talked about it last week, but didn't really talk about awards with it. Um, so um, where do you think it might fit into the conversation? I mean, crafts for sure. But I do mm-hmm. think, I don't know. I mean, the the directing, I think, is really, really strong. I mean, it's David Lowry, obviously. So I, I think there is a conversation to be had there. It really matters how they go through the season with it and market. And, and A24 is really smart with that kind of stuff. So mm-hmm. I could see it being a part of the conversation. But we'll see. It's very early, obviously. It had the badge of honor after the opening opening weekend of a low cinema score, you know, which for a certain <laughs> oh, kind yeah. of movie, you're like, yeah. oh, yeah. yeah, you wear that proudly. Um, yeah. But, you know, I, I sort of when that got tweeted out and people were talking about, oh, you know, bad news for for a 24 and Green Knight. I was like, I'm just glad that there were enough people who went to go see it in a theater. I know. To like have a cinema score. Maybe that maybe it's just 10 people. But like um but because it is, you know, it 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 asks a lot of its audience and and um, and is is a really intense experience to sit through. But I think by the end, and there are those moments you alluded to, Katie, that are kind of funny and morbid humor kind of thing. But by the end, I think that it arrives somewhere that feels incredibly relevant to the experience that you know we've all been through of late. You know, uh, this kind of like consideration of life and death and and i don't know i felt sort of moved by it in a way that i really was not expecting yeah yeah i think especially at the very end um when in the sequence i don't really want to spoil but made me think a lot about a ghost story and like Mm -hmm. it just it makes you kind of take the long 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 view on your own life david lowry has that ability even like the old man and the gun i feel like did that which is a pretty straightforward movie compared to the green knight he's such an interesting filmmaker um and i love that he's just getting to make movies like this like you know getting a movie like the green knight green lit cannot have been easy and i'm I'm grateful that he has that ability as someone who got my heart broken by um, the personal history of David Copperfield in award season last year, um, I don't want to get my hopes up too high for Def Patel. But, like, man, he just keeps doing he's such interesting good in it, stuff. You know? he's, he's so good, good in it. And it's like a revenant kind of performance where he's really enduring a lot physically, but also, you know, expressing a lot emotionally and psychologically. And, and he's great. I mean, yeah. And, and yeah, Larry, though, like, I mean, Ghost Story was, I think, is a really profound film. And, and I, his, his Larry's general fascination with mortality and fear of it but curiosity about it all that like really syncs up with some of my kind of brain wavelength things so (laughs) you know he's actually one of the only filmmakers I've ever reached out to after I I, like sent him like a kind of gushing email after a ghost story he wrote a very kind kind of response back but like you know he didn't read anything I'd written about it but like yeah, it just it just really speaks to it really closely, I think, about a lot of stuff that a lot of filmmakers kind of only allude to. Mm-hmm. This film and the ghost story and, and Old Man and the Gun, to some extent, like are just kind of about it. It walks right up to like this huge final topic and just sits down and kind of like deals with it for two hours. And I think that's really fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, I hope people continue to go see it. It does seem like something that can just like kind of hang out in theaters as long as people feel comfortable doing it. Like, I do think you, if you go see Green Knight at a weird hour, you stand a good chance of not a lot of people being in there. So if that makes you feel safer. Um, but like I said, like I was very encouraged by the amount of people who were at my showing of it. So I hope that keeps happening. Um, and we're going to hear Joanna talk about the Green Knight because she talked to David Lowry for a really uh, great piece on VF.com. So let's let's throw to Joanna. We'll talk to her about Green Knight and set up her interview with Eric Kripke. 
I'm Chris Murphy. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Hillary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast. Next up, we're watching the new HBO show, The Regime. Madam Chancellor, let's keep the gloves on. This is not a confrontation. We're just saying what's true. Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way. New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after the regime airs. Well, hello, Joanna. It's lovely to talk to you. Hello, Kitty Rich. <laughs> I think people have been missing you on Little Goldman this week and last. We know you'll be back next week in full, so gone for not too long at all. I know, but I couldn't resist. I messaged you. I was like, I, you can't talk about the Green Knight for two weeks without me. I know. It's me I crazy. Know. So. I mean, so, yes, you uh, you were not the only person who saw and loved um, the Green Knight, but you got to have a very nice in-depth conversation with David Lowry about it. Um, and you, like, when I, I didn't know that you were going to do a, like, Green Knight explained pose for it. And when I first saw it, I was like, oh, man, like, is this really, like, the kind of movie we need explained? But, like, you're smarter than that. And David Lowry's smarter than that. And the piece is so good where it's just all this context but not like, here's what all of it means, because it's not that kind of movie, right? Yeah. Well, thank you for the compliments. And David Lowry thanks you too, I'm sure. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's... <laughs> It's a it's it's a fascinating ending and and one I like the ambiguity around and the piece definitely doesn't try to like completely uh, break it all down for you in that way but I think that he's so smart in the way that he thought about the ending and the way that he thought about a lot of things pertaining to it so yeah we there was actually two pieces up on vf.com one that I did is sort of like a preview where he talked about some of the influences and that sort of thing and then one I did is a sort of po- after you've seen the film read this yeah um and I just, I just, uh, I think this movie's a masterpiece. I've seen a lot of people who didn't love their experience, but also a lot of people for whom it's sort of like lingering with them. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it strikes me as one of those films that is just going to be uh, like a cult classic, like shown at like festival, you know, like late night screenings and festivals and forever and just really like linger and grow in our conversation. I think, it, I think it's a masterpiece. I really loved it. So, yeah, I mean, I saw it on Friday and uh, I saw it in a theater, as I said, like with a bunch of people, uh, which I was very encouraged by. And I have just been thinking about it constantly and all these things that like, you know, after reading your interview with David Lowry, it like made me think more about it and didn't like change my opinion on the movie, but just like gave it like put it in more context. Like I didn't know that there's a whole detail in your piece about how like the face of the Green Knight changes into faces of other people. I didn't catch that at all. I guess I got to see this whole thing again. I thought it was so smart because I caught like I caught that it changed briefly to Joel Edgerton's face. And I was like, other people might miss it. But I saw that it did this. He's like, oh, no, it changed into five different faces. I was like, oh, <laughs> I missed that. So, yeah, I mean, I think it is a film that's going to reward uh, rewatches. And uh, and I just know, like, if I had seen this as like a teen uh, I would have eaten this right up. This is exactly what my mm. friends and I were watching as as like teens, and so I'm really excited for like kids to grow up with this. This it just like it's it's such an interesting. Uh, homage to 80s fantasy because he he loves 80s fantasy and he talks about like Lady Hawk and Willow and their influences. 
while being very different from like what you think of as 80s fantasy, but it just has that mood. A lot of it is because there's so many practical effects. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's plenty of CG, there's CG foxes and giants and stuff, but there, you know, like the green knight himself is completely practical effects, like all this sort of stuff like that. And, and that just makes it feel lived in. And of course, you know, it's Dev Patel summer. So, you know, <laughs> we're, we're thrilled. So yeah, I just want, I just wanted to weigh in and say how much I love this movie and uh, that I hope people go see it if they feel safe to do so you yeah. got that devotel summer coat from super yaki right uh, yes uh, yeah. yes <laughs> it, had, it had to be done it had to be done um yeah. well your interview with david lowry can be read on vanityfair.com in both the non-spoiler version and the spoiler version um but we're about to listen to another interview that you did with eric kripke the showrunner of the boys and to me one of the more surprising emmy nominees i think you as a fan of the boys were also surprised that it got that best drama nomination right yeah, it's it's wild. But something that we talked about that I thought, you know, if you've if you watched, I really enjoyed the first season, but I think the second season did something even deeper and smarter about showing us about our own current political landscape through the lens of, of superhero storytelling. And um, and I think that just makes it something that without that sort of genre sheen, I think it would have been a tough sit. Do you know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. it is so bleak in parts, but it, it's just, it remains fun and weird and all that sort of stuff like that. So we talked about that. We talked about like how this particular show allows Eric Kripke to really engage with, you know, the aftermath of the Trump administration or, or the pandemic or like yeah. all these sort of things. Um, it's it, it strikes you as a really prescient uh, season of television season two, because just sort of similar to like Watchmen and the timing of everything that happened with Watchmen last year, the timing of, of the boys season two coming, dropping just like a couple months before the Capitol riot uh, in January, but feeling like it was foretelling that event, um, I think has given it a lot of power. And I think, I think a lot of the current events that have happened have just, sort of cemented uh and you know the television academy's esteem i think the show the show is just really you know fun and interesting and and off-putting and and weird and everything all at once and i i'm I'm a big fan of it and i think i mean it just it got huge in season two numbers wise for amazon so yeah i can imagine that will only grow from here um i told eric kripke that i'm starting my emmy campaign now for the lead actor anthony star who plays character homelander for season three because i think he's incredible i think aya cash who played this uh a a nazi superhero uh (laughs) in the season should have gotten and noms so like I would say even more Emmy noms for for the boys but yeah we talked we talked about the season talked about the opportunities of genre storytelling we talked a little bit about season three there might be like a little bit about there and there and and and, uh for the supernatural fans out there they already know this but Eric Kripke who got his start on supernatural uh has drafted supernatural star Jensen Eccles in first season three so people are really excited about that so we talked a little bit about that so here is our conversation with Eric Kripke Hello, how are you? I'm so good. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. I wanted to start, it was funny, I was reading your sort of Insta reaction to the Emmy nominations, um, where you were calling yourself out for being kind of cliche. And I was wondering if with a little bit more time, if you felt like you had any non-cliche reactions. <laughs> response? <laughs> yeah. Um, it took about a full 24 hours for it to actually sink in. I was in my car and the thought 
finally occurred to me. I was like, holy shit, like I need a tuxedo. (laughs) (laughs) That was what popped into my head of of like, there's going to be like a night and a thing and, Mm -hmm. and on stage people talking about it. And uh then it all started to get uh it all started to get very real started to feel real okay yeah it's interesting to me because you know obviously if if you look at the emmys last year um we could say maybe that like watchmen loosened a little little bit on this idea of comic book television as as sort of emmy worthy but i'm just wondering you've been doing this for so long you've been doing genre television for so long you know what does it mean to you for the television academy like yes we're ready we're ready to talk about this I, I think it's really gratifying. I mean, look, nobody gets into genre for the awards. <laughs> you know, that's just uh, definitely not the reason we're here. But the fact that, like, you know, we're being recognized, you know, by our peers for the work we're doing is very, very nice. I mean, people have asked me the question of, of is this like a, a golden age of genre? And my response is like, it's always been this good. Always. It's been this good from Rod Serling through through Gene Roddenberry, through Buffy the Vampire Slayer, X-Files. Like it's just good genre comments on our world and holds a mirror up to it. Good genre is way more subversive and rebellious and revolutionary than you know i think what mainstream entertainment can do and it's just we rarely you know we rarely get recognized for it i mean watchmen for sure i would also it's hard to forget game of thrones you know of like, what you know, no, yeah. yeah exactly i mean <laughs> so uh so i mean i think it's been slow but slow but steady um but it's nice yeah, I mean, to your point, something that that both Watchmen and and the boys, especially season two, do so well is that mirroring that you were talking about. I think there's something to be said for holding up a mirror to some of the hardest truths of our current society, but through the lens of genre, it gives you gives audiences some comfortable distance, right? But then what what that means is that you're making some of the most sort of urgent political television that's out there and i think that's wild i don't know what do you think about that yeah no i thank you for thank you for um saying that because we work really really hard at it you know i mean look the the madness of the show is the spoonful of sugar and it's also the thing that can be noisy and gets asses in the seats um and, you know, we always say that, like, you know, the, the the crazy gonzo moments are basically just like what's on the front of the cereal box. But what we're really interested in is, you know, late stage capitalism and white supremacy cloaked in social media and systemic racism and and then also character and really understanding the humanity of people and how the real heroes are the last to stand in front of everyone and say, I'm going to save you. 
um, real heroes just kind of quietly get along without any praise of getting the work done. And you should be extremely skeptical and suspicious of anyone who stands in front of you and says, I am your hero and I'm here to save you. That person is selling you something. They are not an actual hero. That's not what heroes do. Um, so being able to discuss all of that, um, I think is really important. We, we were very lucky that our show happened to be, cause you know, this comic has been around for, you know, well over a decade and, but we sort of stumbled into that this world happens to explain the exact second we're living in. Yeah. Um, and we, and once we realized that we said, well, let then let's, you know, let's run with that as far as we can. What, I mean, this is a, you know, Garth Ennis makes his comic sort of in a reaction to the Bush era leading, you know, and it's an Obama era comic, um, mm -hmm. but it is, you know, the show is feels so Trump era to those of us watching at home. And I'm wondering, you know, some of the things you talked about, like social media, you know, what, what specific additions to the show beyond what's existed in the comics do you feel like you've added to make it feel even more of now? Um, you know, I mean, I think Garth Ennis, who for my money is the best comic book, you know, writer out there, period. And this is from somebody who <laughs> reads a lot of that stuff yeah. is, um, you know, I think he was just like incredibly prescient in terms of, predicting this intersection of politics and celebrity. So I actually find that it's not so much we're inventing things uh, out of whole cloth because he predicted a lot of it. It, it. It's just more like we're hitting certain things harder to reflect what's happening in our world. You know, like he always had authoritarians pose as celebrities. That was, right. his, that was the gimmick. And it's just, we happen to live in a world where one of them was our president. And so looking for the, you know, for example, the Trump metaphors, you know, in a weird way, it was just like low hanging fruit because it's all just there. Yeah. And it, and it all fits with what we were doing anyway. Like, so you would just like layer it on top of, you know, the scenes and the conflicts that were already there. Yeah. Um, you know, the white supremacy thing, I mean, he, that character Stormfront was in his books. I mean, it was, a, it was a man and it was, and he was phrased in a different way, but like, it was about how corporations and capitalism will allow white supremacy into its ranks as long as it's profitable. And all we did was say like, well, what does white supremacy look like these days Yeah. Um, versus 10 years ago? And we, and it doesn't take long to land at like, well, it's social media. It, it, it fronts as, you know, quote unquote, independent thinking. Um, there's a lot of like very attractive people selling that shit. Yeah. And it's a very like ugly old idea packaged in kind of like this new bouncy way. And we just wanted to, you know, we wanted to present that. So it's just presenting a lot of Garth's ideas just in a way that feels accurate to the current world we're living in. No, I mean, I think it's, it's of course completely accurate to say that 
Garth's comic is prescient, but also how can you not in September, 2020, when this premieres right after the summer of like racial reckoning, feel yourself that, wow, we really picked the right time to do the Stormfront season. You know, people have asked me, uh, you know, where we were, how could we be so psychic and predicting like what was going to happen the years, you know, what was going to happen in the world when it was released. Mm. And, and my response is always, I'm like, well, this is actually the same shit Mm -hmm. (laughs) we've been dealing with Mm -hmm. for about 200 years or so. Um, None of it's new. It's just, it happened to get a lot of attention that summer. Um, but you know things like systemic racism, for instance, and and and, and white supremacy, obviously, have been around since you know country's founding. You talked about the emphasis of character, and that's something that I always admire whenever I sit down and watch an episode of your show because you've got you know these reprehensible villains, you've got Homelander and Stormfront, you've got these incredible actors and Anthony Starr and Aya Cash, and then you've got these moments of real like vulnerability and humanity in even these your most monstrous characters. And yeah. I'm wondering, I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit and like how you calibrate those moments of, um, I mean, I'll call it sympathy. Like there are moments where I was like, am I rooting for Homelander this very <laughs> second? And then it goes away really quickly, but like sure. it comes and goes, you know? Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, oh, for sure. And thank you for saying it. I mean, my approach to anything I write is, and I don't even know if it's so much like an intentional gambit as much as it is. It's just, I don't know how to write any different, which is like, I I, I have a really hard time writing heroes and villains as much as writing okay, who is this person and what's their perspective and why do they do what they do? Um, And like that old quote that everyone's the hero of their own story. And, and like, I don't, I can't get my head around. I just, I can't that like a villain would wake up in the morning, look themselves in the mirror and say like, I'm going to do some evil today. Like (laughs) just, just not how human psychology works. Homelander genuinely thinks he's saving the world. And so for me, it's more about just a curiosity of psychology. Like, you know, you you can't really get into this business if you don't like love psychology. And Mm -hmm. I just find myself fascinated. I'm like, what would make a guy like that do that? And those are easily in our story break, 75% of the conversation of, of why would someone make that move? What would push someone to such an extreme place? How would they feel about it? Would they have any, you know, self doubt what is the thing they really want, even though they can't express it to themselves? We, we spend an incredible amount of time talking about all of that. Um, and then obviously it only works if you have the actors with the skill to pull it off. Um, you know, what is, who is that character presenting? What is their mask, both figuratively and literally? And then what's really happening beneath it? And that only works if you have a really, a, a really strong actor. But um, yeah, we look, the character stuff we do, first and foremost, before the satire, before the violence and the sex. And that's it, because, um, you know, if you were to define my particular business in one way, you would say television is the character business. And it works if you love the characters and it doesn't if you don't. So that's for sure where you should put your effort. 
I'm going to start sight unseen. I'm going to start my Emmy campaign for Anthony Starr for season three, just because. Like, Please do. He really deserves it. He's it's he? wild. He's incredible. He's so yeah. good. The whole cast, of course, is incredibly talented, but like, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, just uh, the million, the multitudes of expressions that play across his face at any given time. So, yeah. Um, I want to talk to you about the, uh, the release strategy for season two, I always am interested to talk to creatives about this because as we are in the streaming age of binge versus week to week, you guys went from a binge model in season one to a week to week in season two. Um, how did that difference land with you? Was that something you were advocating for? Were you pleased with the results? What do you think? Uh, yeah, no, that was, uh, you know, I know some of the fans were unhappy, but it, it was completely producer driven. Um, uh, it was me, Seth Rogen, Evan Goldberg, James Weaver, Neil Moritz. We, we approached Amazon and we said, we think this should be a weekly model. Um, for the reason of, you know, season one got an amazing response. But I think, honestly, I think it's ever so slightly dissatisfying to put that much effort and care into every detail and then have like this two week orgy of attention and love for the show. And then, and then it's just completely disposable and, and people have moved on and, and are on to the next thing. And, and you are left with like, well, but at the end of season, at the end of episode three, did they know how that tied in episode six? And, right. then, and so we found ourselves feeling like we wanted to be a part of it. It was honestly like, we just wanted to be a part of the conversation longer and we wanted to give the audience an opportunity to, you know, obsess over whatever happened in that particular episode's madness and before they got to the next piece. Um, and a lot of fans were really upset, and I get it. Like, it was a particular model they were used to, and they weren't paying attention to the advertising that said it's this new model. And, like, I, I get that they were upset, but I have to say, like, as the experiment, it was an incredibly successful one. Um, we broke through in a way that other shows uh, that are very good but have a binge strategy are not breaking through. Right. Um, and I would argue it's one of the major reasons we did is just we, we got into the conversation long enough that people started telling their friends and more articles were written and, and we just we reached a profile that we wouldn't have otherwise. I have, I have no doubt in my mind that we would not be nominated for best drama had we been in the binge model rather than weekly. I'm very pro the weekly model as someone who likes to talk over each episode and really chew through it. That's, that's my preferred yeah. way for us all to watch television yeah. together. So, cause you never yeah. know if, if people are watching a binge, you're like, did you fit? Did you fit? Or can I talk to you about it now? What are you, what are you, right. where are you? Um, I want to talk to you about, um, so last time I talked to you about this show was two seasons and, you know, a, a world ago, sort of. And at that time, you were talking to me about the way in which you've, you know, you talk about the satire element of your show. Obviously, you're, you're, you're punching up at some of the biggest properties in the world. And um, so, like, you know, the way you boiled it down to me, I think the last time we talked was something about, like, these these folks who are making these stories are are sort of espousing this idea of might equals right. And that is something that you found like a little unsettling and, and, and dangerous. But what I think is interesting is that in the interim, I feel like some of those 
big uh, shows or films are starting to reckon a little bit with this idea of power um, and and whether there's uh, more danger there than than we had thought about. I was wondering if you agree. If if you if you feel like you're a thought leader in that aspect, like you know, <laughs> what do you think of the big scale sort of superhero conversation? Uh, uh, I I think that I'm not a thought leader in anything. Um, <laughs> is my main. That's the headline of your article. Okay. <laughs> no, I do. I mean, look, I you know watch all of it. I've, I've watched every single Marvel movie. I watched, you know, WandaVision, which, uh, uh, you know, Matt Shackman and Nona Kodai, who directed and edited respectively, both, you know, are, have worked on the boys. Um, so I'm really proud and excited for them. I watched Falcon and the Winter Soldier. And yeah, I, I, I think there is a more thoughtful analysis of of the superhero myth. I think it's kind of inevitable to, if the first, you know, if the first wave is just establishing it, I think it's inevitable that the second wave deconstructs and questions. I mean, that's what happened in comics with um, between like the wave of superheroes and then, you know, guys like guards and Neil Gaiman and, and Alan Moore came around and started questioning it. And I think that's, right. that's being reflected in, in, you know, television and film. Um, it's a, I mean, look, I, you know, I hear from a lot of people who, who, who say like, it's, you know, there's, it's some, you know, a superhero is someone to like look up to and be inspired by and be an ideal. And that's absolutely true. Like as long as they remain a myth, mm. you know, like I'm all for myths. Myths are great. I like Paul Bunyan too. He's, you know, he's, you know, mm -hmm. but like, but if you start to consider them as a real thing it's really problematic and authoritarian um and in the real world that's the problem the problem is people sometimes take those myths and then apply them to the real world and that's where it gets dangerous because people then you know can start taking that role of i'm going to be your savior um and and that's just not how the world gets saved it gets saved by taking care of your family and doing a, a million small boring things yeah. to make the world a little better grand gestures are false and you know something about the superhero myth lets people sort of programs them to like expect that but that's just not that's just not what good looks like in this world that's the part that i think you know worries me not worries me but that's the part that we like to be a corrective to yeah. you know a little bit um you know, something that folks are looking forward to in season three, well, among a few other things, but you know, you, you tweeted out in January about this hero gasm episode that you're doing yeah. episode six with this sort of like very, you know, people dared me to make this episode, you know, here, I, here I come with all the like brio that comes with a second season that is so as successful. And I'm just wondering, you know, you feel, you felt that emboldened in January. How much more emboldened do you feel after you're nominated for best drama? <laughs> what are you going to do to top hero gasm? You know? There will be, no, I will not. There will be no topping of hero gasm. If, if, uh, if anything, my only difference between then and now is now I'm like, oh, dear God. <laughs> like, like now that I've seen the dailies of this thing, I'm like, what have we done? <laughs> it's just so crazy. They've always kind of let us do what we wanted to do. But I, I actually think because of that, it comes with a responsibility to um, moderate and modulate ourselves, you know, like some self-censorship because 
you never want to fall on the side of just being gratuitous and and just gross. Um, like so there has to there's always actually quite a lot of discussion about is this crazy moment? Is it is it justified from a story perspective? Does it show the proper respect? Is it fun versus mean? Uh, and because I want I don't want this show to be irresponsible. Yeah. You know, I, I, I want it to be shocking and outrageous, but but of a a moral universe. And so, you know, we try to we try to judge that stuff ourselves. I mean, you've got this this last season. Um, it's it's hard to call it one thing, but like, you know, maybe we could call it the Stormfront season if we wanted to. Right. Um mm-hmm. And so would you have a way to describe season three in a concise way? If seasons one and two were very much about like the present day up to the second of, of what America is like, um, mm-hmm. I'd say season three delves a lot more into the history of how we got here and talks about, you know, probably has through this character of soldier boy, we're able to like dig into the, both the history of the country, but, but also really look at um, uh, toxic masculinity and, and masculine roles uh, and what a shit show that's overall caused um, this whole fucking independent Marlboro man thing. But again, people just, once people start accepting the myth is true, then, you know, I think, I think, negative things happen. I mean, I know you've talked a bit already about working with Jensen again and, and what it's like to put Jensen in this part. Um, but I'm curious, you know, uh, did you, which came first, the chicken or egg? Like, did you decide you wanted to do soldier boy? And then we're like, aha, Jensen or Jensen suddenly free. And you're like, now it's time to do the soldier boy. Season no, or... it's uh, uh, no, we, we had written, uh, we had written soldier boy um, uh, long before I cast Jensen um, and it was funny, like we were like looking for, we were casting around and looking and, um, you know, the majority of the guys we were looking at for that part were actually like quite older than Jensen, um, you know, because it's like a World War II hero and, yeah. and, but it was, it's so funny how these things sometimes happen, which is like Jensen called me and I, you know, I'm not on the show anymore. We keep in touch and text every so often, but I'm not in any regular contact with him, you know, every yeah. couple one I mean, a couple times a year, right? So, but he happened to call me to ask, you know, some question about something I forget. And we were just chatting and like, well, what are you up to? And I'm like, well, you know, I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm getting ready, prepping season three of the show. And, you know, I have this character soldier boy and it was a real pain in the ass to cast. And I haven't really found anyone. And, hey, hey, wait a minute. Do you want to do it? <laughs> and, and um, he was like, well, send me the script. And I sent him the script. And he's like, oh, my God, I totally want to do this. And like less than a week later, uh, he was cast. And it just the kismet of he just happened to call that day yeah. uh, is, is you know, the one of the big reasons he got that part. Uh, last, last question I want to ask you is... Um, you've talked a little bit about this increase of, or, or maybe a focus on, on VNN in season three. Um, and I was just wondering if you could talk about like as quickly as you want. Um, oh, sure. That's the, right. uh, the, inter- the, the investigation you want to do into sort of the media and its role in all of this. I think misinformation is so dangerous and, and 
so self-serving and cynical, and it's so obvious um, that they're willing to actively harm people. I mean, look at all this shit about the, the vaccine cynicism. Right. Um, and it's, you know, these types of networks, and look, you know, the left has their versions too, but like these kind of networks are outrage machines that specifically slant information in an inaccurate way uh, to get people outraged. And so they tune back in and then there's bigger ratings and then they make more money. And, and it's just, it's so wildly irresponsible and destructive um, to just civil discourse of just be enraged, look at the other side as your enemy. Um, it's a zero sum game. And, and, and it's just like, it's a corporate mouthpiece. I mean, it's just straight up propaganda. And so that's another big issue of, of something that we thought, you know, richly demanded ridicule. And so uh, we, we sort of delve deeper into, you know, our, our network VNN. So it just shows you that the majority of the show is like whatever the writers are furious about, <laughs> you know? Right, right, right. And at that moment I was really furious about, about Fox news. And so, um, and so it made its way into the storyline. Excellent. Well, thank you so much and congratulations. On thank you very much. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I really appreciate it. This was yeah. fun. Thanks a lot. That does it for this week's show. Uh, next week, we have a really exciting and fun special episode. We're going to do a 2001 Oscar flashback. And just like last year when we did the 2000 Oscars, we will have Chris File and Joe Reed of the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast joining us. So go watch A Beautiful Mind or Fellowship of the Ring or I Am Sam, which is on Netflix, Fire Beware, uh, and join us. It's going to be a really fun conversation. Uh, in the meantime, you can find us at Vanity Fair. You can find lots of great pieces from both Richard and Rebecca, which I will be, you know, reading, quietly meddling with in the background. Um, you can find us on Twitter at Little Gold Men and on our own. I'm at Katie Rich and Richard. Rylos. And Rebecca. Becca M. Ford. This week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs. And this week's award for the best description of our upcoming Little Goldman interview slate goes to Rebecca Ford. A montage of giant celebrities. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork. And this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com.